Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Our sermon text this morning is 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we come to this text that you would bless every one of our thoughts and meditations. May you help us to be like little children, receiving again your word as uh, nourishment, as milk, pure spiritual milk. Lord, I pray that you would use, use your word to build us up, that we might be fit vessels worthy for uh, glory and worthy to praise you and your and all of your perfections. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We know there are very few people that can tolerate being rebuked. Even though they know they've done something wrong and even feel guilty about having done something wrong. And we know the reason for that. We are proud. We are proud, and our pride keeps most of us from submitting ourselves to any sort of correction. And also, we have a foolish kind of shame which causes us to want to remain in our sins rather than to be told about them. That we, you know, that being told about them, we might beware of them. For this reason, it's required for him who has the job of reproving sinners, pastors, elders, husbands, fathers, mothers, to have some moderation and modesty in him that he may sweeten his rebukes. Otherwise, the rebukes might seem really sharp and really bitter, right? Doctors do the same thing when they give uh, a sick man some, some drink and sweeten it because the medicine tastes disgusting. Uh, they mix some sugar with it. Children's bubblegum-flavored Tylenol comes to mind. Right? None of our kids would take Tylenol if it didn't have that sweet sugar that goes with it. So if we wish to do good in warning those who have done some wrong, we should deal with them in gentleness and meekness. That's the sweetener. Right? And this is especially required toward old men who are more stubborn and hard to rule. There we go, making distinctions based upon Scripture. Old men think they have lived long enough in the world to know what is good, Right? And they would exempt themselves from all rebuke because of their age. Right? They, they have an exemption. 
Um, but they have more need of gentle rebuke than others because when an old man gives himself to do evil, it is a good deal less to be tolerated than in a young man. And it, it's, it's more awful when an old man gives himself to sin. But old people are not very patient when corrected. Therefore, we must be wise in how we correct them so that they will receive our correction well. Like that children's Tylenol, we must sweeten the rebuke, right? So that they may tolerate it and may be made better by it. The Apostle Paul says to Pastor Timothy in this passage that he must not deal roughly or sharply rebuke old people, but rather should rebuke them as fathers and mothers, Remember, Timothy was a young man. Therefore, those who were rebuked by him would like, you know, would likely reply and say that, you know, you're too young to handle me so harshly. And therefore, you know, St. Paul, the Apostle Paul, uses such means as he knows to be helpful to the particular people with which he is working. We, we also see from this passage that he who is the calling to preach the word of God must not only expound the scriptures generally and reprove sins generally and rebuke those who have done wrong, but also deal wisely and discreetly with specific individuals. The pastor must deal so wisely that the doctrine which he preaches may be well received by them, or if it is not, at least it's not his fault if it's not. For he may preach very well and still find stubborn resistance against such warnings as he gives, though they might be very sweet and gentle and patient and kind. But that's not his fault. Yet nonetheless, we who have charged to teach and correct the people of the church must not only see what is profitable for them in general, but also must deal with everyone according to his age specifically. Now think, think about this from this text. It is not enough for a man who is a shepherd in the church of God to preach and cast widely the word from the pulpit, but he must engage in private admonition. And this is a point that many don't like today. Uh, they think that the order of the church was made for no other end and purpose but that they should come to church one hour a week, hear a man speak, and when the pastor has come out of the pulpit, the pastor should just shut up and hold his feet. Those who think that way show that they have never known what Christianity or God's order really means. From this passage, we learn that the man who has preached the word and has taught the people must give his attention to those who have need to be warned of their faults privately. In the book of Ezekiel, it is not only said that God has set the shepherd to lead his flock out to feeding, but his office is to help the weak, to heal the disease, to remedy the infirmities that are among them. And therefore, if we want to be faithful to God and to those who are members of our churches, it is not enough for us to offer them doctrine generally. But when we see any of them go astray, we must bring them back to the right way. When we see someone in grief and sorrow, we must go comfort him. When we see someone who is lukewarm, 
then we must push him to faithfulness as much as he can bear. But yet, we must remember that the Apostle Paul will not have us bear with old people in a way that leaves them in their sins. For if they have need to be told of their faults, and who doesn't, right, we must do it. It is true that they would rather be spared and not treated in this way, but we say what, what order God gives by the Apostle Paul's mouth, that we must always reprove, reprove faults both in young and the old. We should not give them only flattery so that they may not be improved from correction and discipline. Whatever they can say for themselves, we must beware of this only, that they do not become spiritually lazy. And when we come to an old man, we must honor his age using as much sweetness and gentleness as we can. Now, of course, it is true that this must be understood to only apply to those who are not utterly past correction. right? For if an old man is hardened, if he's a hard old man and is a rebel against God, then we must drop the sweetness and deal with him sharply. But even still, before we have dealt sharply with him, we must use this sweetness at the previous steps. We must treat them as fathers, although they have done something wrong or sinful. And it is certain that when, when he who must tell an old man of his fault, which he has committed, if he thinks of this man as a father, he will use reverence and modesty in correcting him. As for those who are around the same age as us, Paul will have us approach them as brothers and sisters. And this also serves to cause us to use gentleness so that we will not be too rigorous against them because brothers and sisters are gracious or should be gracious toward one another. Uh, So when the age is equal, a brotherliness should guide us and therefore we should use gentle admonitions that none may be offended unless he chooses to be obstinate right, and get angry. And a number will do that regardless of the kindness we use. And there will be those that we can't ever win. They ultimately harden themselves against God and will not tolerate to be corrected. Such men, therefore, will never profit even if we use the gentlest correction and the most loving words. Why? Because the devil possesses them. They become filled with bitterness. They have this sharpness of spirit which the scripture speaks of to poison themselves against God and to refuse all good warnings. We see a number whom the devil has so marred that there is no way to bring them to do good. But if someone is not wholly hardened in his sins, if a man brings him that kind of man, a a good tasting or a sweet medicine, it is certain it, it is going to soften him up. It will be helpful to him. So this passage directly addresses those who are pastors and teachers. It's Paul writing to Timothy, showing them what their office is towards the people. But its teachings, you know, it belongs to all of us. If we are all gently dealt with when we have done wrong and feel that we are handled like a brother and that those who correct us are truly seeking our salvation, they're truly trying to seek what's good for us, 
And then if we pray the, play the rebel and despise God and grieve his spirit, then, then we're very poorly off. And why? Because God, God has appointed this particular means. To the end that we should profit in his doctrine and not be hard-hearted. God will not have our sins covered. Right? He, he won't have our sins covered and lie hidden so that we, they may not be known. And therefore, God will not have men to use flattery because flat, flattering it covers up sins. It causes a rottenness that can never be healed. But God wants to have sins and the sins of his people reproved. God will have us beaten down. Yes, those sins be lovingly and gently reproved. Yet if we cannot abide such loving admonitions when they are made to us, this is not to hate men, but to make war against God who sends us these messengers. No man enjoys having his faults told to him, but as soon as someone opens his mouth to reprove him, then begins like open warfare. Then... Deadly hatred begins. And why? Because we do not consider that to refuse the rebukes that are made to us in God, God's name and by his commandments is to resist God. And therefore, we must remember this place all the more where we are told that God will not have sins nourished by leaving them alone, as though we, would, we do not see them, but, but that we must see them and have them corrected gently and, and modestly. Now, when the Apostle Paul wants Pastor Timothy to do this with all purity regarding the young women, he does not first mean that Timothy should abstain from all, you know, lecherousness, his lecherous sort of manner, approaching a woman as, as a, an object. But yet his meaning was to prevent suspicions that might arise along those lines, right? For as soon as one sees a man speaking with a young woman, although it's for, like, her salvation, immediately many people will start to talk about it, will murmur or gossip, and therefore Paul, seeing that Timothy might be subject to these false reports and slander, warns him that he better be wise about how he talks to the younger women. If he must do so, he should do it with fear and reverence that the mouths of the wicked may be stopped, that the weak will not be offended, and that no one will be able to think poorly of Timothy. If it were up to the devil, if it were up to the devil, he would, we would never have sermon or doctrine or rebukes. He would never have those things. And seeing that he cannot make that happen, he would gladly wish that when pastors go into the pulpit, our sermon should be like a musical concert. That we should preach such doctrine that no man might be touched. Right? But just go home as they came. Just like if you went to see a concert. You would go home no more the better. You would go home having never thought once about yourself or self-examined. What preaching is that you would have? Many wish that the doctrine might be exciting. Right? Many of you are bored right now. 
Many of you wish it was eloquent and exciting so that we might hear uh, no other words but these. Oh, what a great preacher. What a great preacher is our preacher. What a handsome man. What, what a good sermon. If a man preaches in that way or for that end, it will be of no good for those who hear him. And yet, this is what everybody wants today. And this is what most preachers give. Right? And this phrase that we hear all the time, we must preach according to the text, really means this, that the word of God no longer has any use among us. And that we are here as if in hiding and that God no longer enlightens us. But remember, on the contrary, Scripture says, Let the word of God be a two-edged sword. Let there be neither marrow nor bone nor thoughts nor affections that are undiscovered. By means of God's word, God searches us as if, we, as if he were taking our souls apart. Scriptures say in another context, in another text, that, that the office of the word of God is to bring to light the things that we want to keep hidden. As it also says that it is God who searches the hearts right, by means of his word. So therefore, let those who would profit the church take heed to give no occasion either to the weak or to the angry to be offended or to speak evil and blame them when pastors do what they're supposed to do. All right, now I'm going to let you in on a little secret that the session knows about. That was John Calvin. All of that sermon up to this point was John Calvin preaching this text. Okay, I stole it straight from Calvin and paraphrased it. Now, why in the world would I do that? Um, it's, it's certainly not because I'm lazy, because it took me a lot longer to work through that and phrase it in a way that sounded like myself than it would have been to just write a sermon. It was about three and a half hours of me just going through his text. Um, so the reason I wanted to share that with you is, first of all, the sermon was convicting to me. And I wanted to share that conviction with all of you. Uh, second, I want us to understand this that's very important. The kind of preaching and pastoral ministry from the pulpit and in private ad admonition, the kind of pastoral ministry that we give ourselves to well, sometimes we do. Sometimes we do so poorly. The, the kind of ministry we give ourselves to in this church is nothing new. It is nothing new. Do you see Calvin trying to bring conviction? That he's trying to appeal to the conscience in his preaching. I mean, he's, he's even calling out old men. And the translator used the word old folks. And I just couldn't. I couldn't get myself to say that. I, I even softened that for you, old folks. But Calvin is not concerned to be well-liked himself or to have you feel flattered when you leave. Right? D does this make Calvin a legalist? No, of course not. It makes him a sanctificationist. Right? He wants Christians to grow in holiness. What kind of father never corrects his children? The one who does not love his children, right? And, and couldn't care less whether they become anything or, 
you know, even become a fear of God? Um, what kind of session never corrects their flock? The session that does not love their flock and could not care less whether or not their church is pure. Right? Contrary to what you've learned in the American Reformed context, the Word of God is meant to fill you, is not meant to fill you with self-deluded, vain flattery. Do you, do you remember that, that, that phrase that Calvin used? God will have us beaten down. When was the last time you ever heard that from a pulpit? You're supposed to say, God will not beat you down. You know, we're supposed to protect our congregation from God. And here Calvin's like, no, no, God will beat us down. Because he's a good father who scourges his sons. Because he loves them. The word of God is not meant to fill you with self-deluded vain flattery. It's meant to give you cause to examine yourself. It is a two-edged sword meant meant to do precise surgery. Yes, it's meant to give you every confidence of the way of salvation in Jesus Christ, but it does so by means of the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. In other words, God is a Father who will give you all the attention you need. He will do so through His Word, and that attention will be good. It will be good, but but painful because we continue to sin. Let me also say that redemptive historical preaching, that kind of preaching that says you must preach the text. Calvin said that in his sermon, right? This kind of preaching that says you have to preach the text. Of course, you have to preach the text. But Calvin quotes that in a mocking way saying, people are saying that in order to not bring conviction. Right? And redemptive historical preaching exists so that preaching cannot bring conviction. Okay? And Calvin is saying that. Um, Calvin is dogging that kind of preaching in his sermon, and it's the kind of preaching that I'm dogging too. I sat under that kind of preaching for three years in seminary, and it left me dry, spiritually weak, and with very little ability to do the self-examination that the scripture commands me to, right? And the repentance and the faithful living and the pursuit of sanctification and the growth in the Lord. I was reminded every week that Jesus, that, that the, the, um, of just one thing, that there are no examples of faithful living other than everybody pointing to the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. But don't you pursue your faithfulness. Jesus has done it. That leads to antinomianism. Third, notice th these are my reasons for doing this. So first, it was conviction. Second, it's the kind of ministry that, that, that would that God would increase in our churches. Third, notice Calvin's approach to this passage, which was helpful to me. A modern preacher would come to this text about what is primarily a pastor, an exhortation for pastors to be gentle, sweet, and brotherly in his approach. And they would begin talking about, what would they talk about? They would begin talking about pastoral abuse. 
right? And, and they would end up making a case for the ceasing of all pastoral authority. Calvin, though, while focusing on the preacher, also focuses on what this text teaches us about the recipients of those rebukes. How many of us would expect a pastor to address old people and their particular brand of stubbornness, which we all know about, right? I mean, we're, we're all, we all know that old people are stubborn, but it's the sort of thing you're never supposed to mention in the church. Scripture does, but we can't. Calvin cares, Calvin cares for the old people in his church, cared for the old people in his church. He reminds them that they tend towards stubbornness. Uh, Just like I did with the old women a few weeks ago, because the passage, I was just preaching the text. The passage went there. Old Old wives' tales, right? Um, you know, he, he warns them that they are particularly susceptible to, to stubbornness. So in some sense, I'm using Calvin's sermon as an illustration of just exactly what is commanded of in this passage. So you get that. Calvin, the whole sermon is a, an example of being specific. Fourth, or is this fifth? I don't know. Please forgive me for the times when I have been harsh and unbrotherly or impure in my approach to you. Um, That should not be. Uh, Often those things, those uh, approaches arise when I let my pride get in the way of my ministry. And if I feel like I'm being attacked, right, if I feel like I'm being attacked, I can very easily respond too quickly and out of my pride. What the pastor and the elder have to learn is this. If the attack is personal against you, let it go. Let it go and be gracious to the person who's attacking you. If the attack is against the glory of God in his name, don't you ever hold back. Do not hold back when God's name is being attacked. Someone should be able to say anything about my preaching, anything about my clothing or my countenance or my children or my wife or, or any of those things, and I should be able to uh, just let it go, honestly. And lots of people do say those things, and, um, and it, it's my calling to let that go. But as a steward of the mysteries of God, if someone dishonors God or his bride to be silent and deferential, well, that'd be, that'd be terrible wickedness. That would be a betrayal of my calling as a steward of the mysteries of God. It'd be a betrayal of an elder to do that. Fifth, if you are the recipient of a rebuke, of some sort of correction, receive it well. Receive it well. Uh, it, will, it will be hard for you to hear even the gentlest of correction as anything but harsh and unbrotherly. I know that because it's, that's me. That's, that's how I receive correction, right? But remember that tendency. If you're an older man and a younger man has the awful responsibility of coming to you and correcting you, 
You better know, first of all, that he's scared out of his wits to do it. But, but then beyond that, think perhaps that God could be at work in that young man's words. Think that that could be the case. And that age is not everything. So don't be stubborn. Don't be stubborn. Six, remember the main appeal. Husbands, when you are correcting your wife, are you remembering that she is the weaker vessel, that you are to live with her in an understanding way? Right? Mothers, when you are correcting your children, are you harassing them? Are you belittling them or are you treating them as brothers and sisters? Um, as souls that have been given to you by God that he wants you to steward. Right? Bosses, are you a sharp rebuker? Are you sharp with your tongue in that situation? Or one who demands things without giving an explanation as to why? I'm not going to tell you why, just do it. Um, reassess whether or not that is according to God's word and this passage and what it would have you do. Seventh, men and young men, when you, when you are interacting with women and younger women, are you doing so with all purity? My wife and I have certain rules about interacting with persons of the opposite sex. I won't be in my office with the door closed with a woman. I won't do it. Um, she, she, my wife won't ride in a car alone with a man. Okay? Often when I'm communicating via email, I'll carbon copy elders or I'll carbon copy or blind carbon copy my wife on emails that I send to women, um, particularly those who are my age or younger. Do you have, say, men, do you have... Young men, do you have safeguards in place like this so you can be sure that your approach to younger women is like the approach to a sister, right? In all purity. Um, along those lines, I remember when Sarah and I were, um, we weren't even, well, it, I guess we were dating. It was a first date. We were in graduate school. We're about 24 years old. And Sarah, this, this stunning uh, talented, beautiful, blonde, Dutch girl, farmer's daughter, um, showed at, at church, uh, the church formerly known as Church of the Good Shepherd. And after I got up the nerve, I called her and asked her if she wanted to grab some lunch with me at a, a place across from the, the music school. And um, now it was not until I paid for the meal that she understood that it was a date. She thought that the church had sent me to meet with her to answer her questions about the church. Now, no church worth its weight in salt would send a single man to meet a beautiful single woman on church business over a private lunch. Um, that, that is not to approach your sisters in all purity. And there have to be safeguards and policies in place to avoid such improprieties. In our age of casual sexual relationships, in objectifying pornography, in all the gender confusion, in the gender-neutral insistence, and the, you know, the feminist anger at any man who, who might open the do a door and treat a woman like a woman, 
we have to be really intentional about this. Right? Do you, do you remember the flap recently about Vice President Pence? He was relentlessly mocked because he said he never dined alone with another woman. Um, other than his wife. Uh, then that became known as the Pence Rule. Right? And he was dragged through the mud for it. Um, did you mock him? You shouldn't. You shouldn't. It should be your rule, too. We should all follow the Pence rule so that we can appeal to all women in all purity. And so there's some specifics for you. The scriptures are specific, aren't they? And this is about Christians being sanctified by his word. Remember, what, what's the song that we sang? Lord, we confess our numerous faults. What was that song about? One, we have numerous faults. But that's like the first line. What's the rest of the song about? Salvation by grace through faith alone. It's God's salvation. So the context of my sermon has been that song. I told you about the saving work of Jesus Christ. And then I exhorted you from God's word to pursue your sanctification. So don't call me a legalist. This is, this is Reformed Preaching 101. That's why I used Calvin's sermon. Every sermon does not have to be a pep talk about how Jesus has saved you. That is the context of everything we do. That is the context of our singing. But you are called to be holy as God is holy. You are called to honor the one who has saved you and has removed your sins from you by pursuing righteousness. And that will be the content of many of the sermons that you hear from this pulpit. Um, pursue. Make great pains. Remember the previous passage that we looked at, that, that, that Timothy was to take great pains in pursuing godliness because in that he would ensure himself and those who heard him of their salvation. Right? So that's... That, that's what I'm saying today from this text. So do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, to the older men as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. And now, since I've stolen so abundantly from Calvin this morning, I'm going to close with his prayer. So let's pray. Now let us fall down before the face of our God, confessing our faults and praying to him that it would please him to forgive us of them and to put out the remembrance of them and henceforward reform us in such a way that we desire nothing but to frame ourselves wholly to his commandments.